Hello, everyone. Welcome once again to Warrior Diplomacy. This is the podcast where we talk about international politics, geopolitics, and everything that goes in between there. Uh, my name is Fabio, and I don't know if you're aware of this, but this would be Narendra Modi favorite podcast. Of course, Chris, I think that he would absolutely love this episode on India on the geopolitics of the Indian uh, nation and, and everything that's happening in Asia. I think we have an amazing guest for this episode, so really interesting. Uh, I'm here as well with Aramis, Aramis Sinke, straight from Vienna. How are you? Thank you, I'm good. Um, just signed my rental agreement to live in The Hague and I'm looking forward to that. So we're going to have you really close to, to Brussels next semester. That's going to be sure. nice. That's going to be nice. But that's interesting because uh, n neither Chris or I are in Belgium right now. I am in Mexico. I came here a couple of days ago to spend a couple of months with my family and friends. And Chris, you are in Norway, right? You just got there yesterday. Yes, back in Oslo. Just got here last night. Sweet, sweet. All right. Well, let's uh, let's try to make the best out of this summer and have a lot of energy for next semester, which I'm sure is going to be really interesting. And well, let me just introduce uh, quickly our amazing guest, uh, Shital. She's uh, one of our classmates from from BSIS, our master's study. And she's a, a proud Indian citizen. She's currently pursuing her master's in political strategy and communications in Brussels, in, in BSIS as well. And she plans to work in the foreign and security policy landscape. She has previously completed her bachelor's in global studies with a concentration in global security and conflict. So, Shital, how are you today? Welcome to World Diplomacy. Hi, guys. Thank you so much. I've been listening to this podcast for a while. And I'm really excited to be here and to be invited to talk about India. And I'm in Brussels, so I'm doing great. You're the only one here in Brussels. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. Sweet, sweet. So, well, yeah, we have a really interesting topic today. And I think, Armis, uh, would you mind to maybe introducing a little bit the topic? What are we going to talk about? Yeah, as you might have already read in the title of today's episode, today we will talk about India, which has been one of the fastest growing economies since the end of uh, the Cold War and is currently the fifth largest global economy in nominal terms. Consequently, it is not surprising that India is seen as one of the rising powers of the emerging world order and in Asia especially. However, even as India has risen in an absolute sense, as well as vis-a-vis -vis almost all countries over the past few decades, India has been in relative decline vis-a-vis -vis China. And uh, due to India's territorial population and economic size. It is a major player in, in world affairs, of course. And it is in, a, in the midst of a geopolitical repositioning as it navigates through its place in the evolving regional and global order, especially affected by China. And the second most populous country in the world, um, which is India currently, but um, will be the most populous country in the upcoming decades, finds itself at this intersection of traditional geopolitical challenges and emerging regional and global trends. And the rise of China and its ex expansionism, the reassertion of Russia, the reordering of US global priorities, breakdown of the post-Cold War global political and economic order, have opened up unprecedented challenges, but also opportunities for India. In today's episode, we are going to touch several topics of prime importance to understand the dynamics in South Asia and the Indo-Pacific 
region as this issue is highly underaddressed in global news, even though um, it is a growing field. Now we will go to our first block where we will discuss India's historic non-alignment position and how they have navigated big power politics throughout contemporary history. And then we will get to our second block where we'll, we will get more into the current politics and the current geopolitical stance. And then in the last sections, we will talk about um, interior politics in India and about um, Modi, India's um, prime minister and um, his party, because there are many allegations, much talk, also a lot of criticism. We will get further into that. I think that um, a key element for us to understand India and the way that it, they behave in the international uh, in, environment, it's this historical non-alignment position. So I think that the, for, for the first blog, I think uh, we can ask uh, Shital a little bit more about that and how India has uh, historically decided to, to put itself in, the, in, like, in this middle position and how that has uh, evolved throughout uh, contemporary history. So, uh, Shital, can you just briefly maybe take us through through a summary of India's relation with this non-aligned movement? How did it, when did it start developing, and maybe how uh, India continues to behave as that middleman in world affairs? It's important to know that India, as an independent country, she's not even a hundred years old. So, India's foreign policy is a byproduct of history, culture, tradition independent movement against the Britishers and influence of Mahatma Gandhi's philosophy of non-violence. Hence, uh, India has always leaned and adopted a non-conflict and non-violence policies, resulting in a passively reactive policy implementation and policy changes. The Article 51 of the Indian Constitution defines the directive principles for promoting of Indian peace and security, including encouragement of settlement in international disputes by arbitration, negotiation. They don't want to escalate towards military violence of any sort. India maintains its democracy and national independence while still being involved in world affairs with its non-alignment movement, NAM, which was created after the fall of the colonial system. Uh, India has always strived for peaceful relations. Its punchil or the, the five principle of coexistence was kind of brought into focus when it signed its trade agreement uh, in the Tibet region with China in uh, April of 1954. For India, non-alignment policy has always been a strategy in international politics to steer clear from growing blocks of power during the Cold War. And do you feel, SG, that recently uh, it, it comes to my mind, the geopolitical rivalry between the U.S. and China. Do you think that India is still trying to follow this middle way between them, like trying not to get too close to the states, not too close to China? But like, do you feel like it's still the same or do you feel like India might be uh, maybe positioning itself closer to the West, closer to the states than China? I think when you talk about China, it's mostly because that... Uh, China's one of the main focus in policy is to take control of Asian countries and kind of like seclude India. That's why India has been looking more west. But at the same time, uh, they would not align themselves with a country in particular because they know that they share a border with China and pushing those relations might cause some issues on the McMahon line or 
in the Apsai region near Ladakh. So it's it's difficult to determine where you play in international politics always, when especially when you share a border with a powerful country like China. Actually, that is there is a great analysis. I, I I agree with you on those points, and I I'm sure that it's really challenging for India and its politicians how to handle their policy uh, when they share a border with China, where there has been a conflict there. So I'm sure I think that there was even a border war between them in 1962. I don't know if I'm right. Yeah. Around those those years, right? So I'm sure that even yeah. today it's really really conflicted. So I think that this is a really good way to maybe end this first introductory block and jump into the second one, which is more about uh, and and to analyzing the current uh, geopolitics of the Asian continent. Well, yeah, you've already been touching upon it uh, in, by talking about the rivalry between the U.S. and China, and that is, of course, very relevant to discussing the the new geopolitical landscape of the Asia Asian continent. Um, I, uh, as as we all know, China is, of course, now pursuing the path of becoming the the undisputed power in the region, and and this development has been accompanied by growing uh yeah conflict over over strategic resources and control over territory uh both as the us and its allies try to defend their position but also between states in the region so how is india the second most populous country in the world after china then reacting to this conflict where where do you where do you see the foreign policy being being directed now with indian foreign policy is it continuing on this line and, and is ex expanding its ambitions in that sense? Uh, well, uh, since the BJP party, which is Modi's party, came into power, uh, there's been a shift in putting India first uh, in terms in international platforms and seeing how India plays out. Because uh, there has been this idea that uh, India should be self-reliant and self-sufficient but at the same time, um, encourage foreign investment in the country. And in relation with China, India has been taking a strong stance against China. Uh, we have, India has banned nearly 50 apps and a lot of uh, companies, including TikTok, which is, I'm sure, the fan favorite. Uh, TikTok has been banned in India. Uh, shopping brands, uh, this app called WeChat, so it's just that um, India, in terms of right now, where they want to go is that they want to make relations with these Western countries like Australia, with the block that they were trying to create with uh, France and with UK and Australia and um, the United States, because that's kind of where their allies are. Because China, with this Belt and Road Initiative, has been pushing the boundaries near India, which is still um, not decided. There's a line of actual control, but it's not a real line. It's not a real border. And what China has been doing is also been uh, economically funding Pakistan for the Belt and Road initiatives to expand Beijing's influence, because of which India is kind of like in the middle of a rock in a hard place where you have Pakistan on one side and China on the other. And 
I think that's where um, the strategic autonomy still comes into play because they don't want to align themselves with someone completely and then face some crisis with borders and mass casualties or escalating to military offenses. No, what you just said is so true. I think that you cannot understand India's behavior without understanding that China and Pakistan have like this close uh, connection. And it, it's interesting because their mutual, uh, their, the diplomatic relation between China and Pakistan is based on the mutual antagonism towards India, right? And that yeah, that is really interesting because pretty much the whole Pakistani nuclear weapon program was essentially an extension of the Chinese one. So you clearly can can try to see why uh, China right. has such uh, an important uh, focus on Pakistan because it's it's way to maybe try to dissuade India into um, dividing its uh, its uh, focus in two borders in two different uh, frontiers. Right. And like China has about 350 nuclear warheads and has about 173 billion US dollars in funding for defense. India only has about 150 nuclear warheads and about 73 billion US dollar in funding. But at the same time, India also has a policy of non-first use, which basically means that India will never be the first to in a conflict to use nuclear uh, power or nuclear uh, weapons. And this is kind of one of the agendas that they've been push pushing on the UN uh, platform to make sure that non-proliferation is used by all countries that have nuclear weapons. Listening to this, you might suggest that India is, is being pushed into a strong cooperation with the West and especially US and the, the Quad Partnership. But um, just having listened to, to Indian officials on the Quad Partnership, they really emphasize that this is not a partnership against China and not a military alliance. Do you think that India um, can continue this path and can continue to um, hold those economic ties with China because the economic trade between the two countries is, has actually been quite viable over the last um, few years? So. Do you see that India will um, lean further towards the West or do you think they will continue to subscribe to this uh, neutral stance? I think India will still uh, continue to subscribe to this neutral position because uh, while the trade with China continues at the same time because of the uh, pressures with COVID and a lot of Western countries trying to move their manufacturing outside of China, that they're looking for a new market. And India still works a lot in the primary sector with about a huge population working in the primary sector. So it, uh, India doesn't wanna uh, break ties with China because they can still procure these raw materials and everything from China, but at the same time, there are these other big Western countries that wanna move their operations from China to India because of low labor costs with uh, COVID and the surrounding climate around COVID with uh, racial um, bordering of Asians, uh, it's kind of become this uh, growing market that uh, companies want to move to India. Uh, but at the same time, India is still going to maintain its neutral position because uh, they do not see themselves aligning with a particular country anytime soon. And a pretty good example for that is that they are now purchasing 
natural resources from Russia for a highly reduced price. So they can really exploit this position at the same time cooperating with the West, but on the other hand, um, doing those kind of deals. While I don't support war and any uh, huge military conflicts, at the same time, I feel like because uh, even in the UNGA, uh, India abstained from taking a vote against the war in Ukraine. That's why they have been able to leverage their position to get these raw materials that you were talking about from Russia at lower costs. I remember I, I listened, I, I read in, in an article something really similar regarding um, military equipment and how India gets a lot of its equipment from uh, from Russia. And it's a really a similar position. Like, um, of course, that I, I am sure that they uh, should have had said, uh, like, completely stand against the, the invasion. But at the same time, we have so many uh, economic ties. Uh, basically, all of your uh, military equipment comes from there. It's quite a complicated political position, right? So this uh, this article was stating that maybe the West should uh, give India a little bit more of what they actually want. In order for them to stop uh, like that that connection with Russia, and I don't know if Shital, if you see it in a similar way, do you think that the West should put a little bit more emphasis in trying to push India towards like uh, in, to their side in in a way, or do you feel like India will most likely never get closer to a Western uh, alliance uh, sword, you could say, or do you think that India will always remember this this middleman? How do you see that? I think that um, because of uh, like Indian policy mostly depends on tradition and culture and that, you know, um, as long as the West is the West and they uh, don't have a huge overlapping of tradition and culture with India, uh, it's it, it won't be possible of for India to like completely align themselves. Uh, like um, Nepal and Bhutan are huge uh, allies of India. And uh, when there was a conflict with uh, China trying to construct a, a road right in the Siliguri region, which is also known as like the chicken's neck, which connects India to the east of India. So when they were trying to build a road, uh, India came to uh, uh, Nepal's rescue because they, wa they wanted to make sure that this was not affecting any uh, border or any um, permanent structures. So I feel like uh, India won't align themselves to a country permanently, maybe for small strategic partnerships, because India has uh, done a lot of strategic partnerships for, with countries, even though they don't share the, the same views, maybe about human rights or something, something of that sort, because India has a lot of uh, strategic partnerships with the European Union as well. But when the European Union kind of pushed to involve uh, um, intelligence and um, human rights, everything like that, India was mainly like, let's focus on trade and let's focus on economic development and not the other things that we are talking about. Talking about strategic uh, partnerships with the West, how much is the West and uh, especially Western countries still viewed in India as colonizers and how much, what role does the past play in in today's um, political discourse? There's this deep, deep cause of um, religious divide that was created by the Britishers. We uh, wanted a secular and 
joined India, uh, people did not want India divided. Uh, two days after the independence was gained, that is when the new borders were revealed for India and Pakistan. So it came as a shock to everyone who had to, to suddenly like pack up their things and flee. And in terms of current climate, um, people in, in India still think that the U.S. is a huge superpower and moving to the U.S. to find a better life for some people is still a huge and popularized idea. Um, well, it was popularized for me too, because uh, that's where I went to uh, pursue my bachelor's. Uh, but after living there, I could relate that, you know, this is not the kind of life that I was living in India. Uh, it feels very isolationist and you don't really want to, you don't really feel part of a community. So the United States is very hyped in India, where in terms of people, if they want to move out of the country, if they want to go study, uh, United States and Australia is kind of the top choices. And it's also because of the political relations with these countries, because of which students feel like these are their top choices. So the younger generations are, are highly influenced by the by the American and Western culture, and the older generations still have in mind um, what happened after the, the decolonization efforts. Yeah. And what it's, about the relation regarding the UK? Because the UK was the, the main colonial power in India. How does India look at the UK today? Do you feel like now with Brexit and, and the UK trying to pursue this uh, global Britain agenda, uh, there's a possibility for more connections regarding India and UK or don't you see India kind of rejecting that because of that colonial past? India is uh, has been, you know, um, under this burden of being a colonized uh, power by Britishers for a long time. But at the same that because the politicians were able to maintain uh, such a standard with the Britishers, you don't really see the like you see the things that the Britishers did in India, like the railway system, our British, our entire legal system is kind of duplicate of the British system, but it's evolved now. Uh, but at the same time, when you see these small things in India at like an age of like 22 and below, you just feel like, oh, it's been here, it's existed. But if you talk to someone from the older generation, they're like, oh, this is what the Britishers did. This is the way the Britishers intended the city. This is the way that they created this. So because after the independence, because the political uh, relation with the UK was still maintained, just in terms of trade and export, uh, or even someone you know, wanting to take a vacation, because that seemed like the closest spot, even though it was pretty far because of the relations. Uh, it was just that, you know, if someone wanted to go for a vacation and someone would be like, oh, let's just go to the UK because they, they feel that they might be familiar. And because of the Britishers in India, everyone uses British English. We've been taught English in schools from as uh, like Montessori kindergarten.
today we talked a lot about um, India's stance in, in foreign politics and um, how it is affected by this kind of, you could even call it pacifist stance or neutral stance of, of non-interference. I think another important aspect we have to dig into is the fact that um, Modi's BJP party is ethno-nationalistic and um, there were many scandals regarding crackdowns um, on Muslims, riots, um, cases where Modi himself did not um, react properly to those um, happenings and did not crack down on them and um, import um, not even condemned those actions against them. And we also have scandals um, regarding institutional um, discrimination of minorities, especially of Muslims. Um, so in this section, we'll get further into Modi, into interior politics and um, the BJP party. Um, okay, so let me start by talking about Modi. So Modi was the chief minister of Gujarat for about uh, 13 years. And during his uh, period, he kind of pushed this Hindu Vata uh, perspective, which basically was pro-Hindu. It didn't exactly mean that it was against Muslims, but it was just a more pro-Hindu uh, take into consideration more of Gandhi philosophies. And this because of uh, the changes that he made, the huge impact on infrastructure, the cleanliness within the state, it made him a very popular candidate for the Lok Sabha, which is the lower house of the parliament, which selects the candidate for the prime, uh, prime minister if they win a majority to direct elections. So he became a very popular candidate. And then when he won the elections, uh, he had a lot of ideas. He wanted to make a lot of changes in the country. He started simple with the Swachh Bharat Adhyan, which was uh, cleaning India, uh, making sure that uh, there's no uh, trash throwing on the streets, or, you know, uh, creating garbage on corners or um, not having people um, beg on the streets. So this was kind of the small initiative that he started and he became really popular through it. And people were really accepting his agenda and they were feeling that uh, what he's doing for the country in the next five years is going to be really great. And then the next thing... He did in 2016 was the demonetization and this was not popular amongst people and they felt like the one percent of india kind of already knew about it so they were able to kind of escape uh this basically was a ploy to get all the black money out of the country the corruption because a lot of politicians were charged with corruption charges because they were taking money under the table and you know, so this was a huge movement also for digitization in India. So a, lo a lot of things became online, on the phones. Uh, you could pay a street vendor through Google Pay now, and you can make small purchases and everything. And then when he was in uh, office in 2016, uh, that's when the first uh, surgical strike against Pakistan happened. So there were these uh, um, people who had gotten in the 
military base in Uri in Kashmir and uh, where they planted bombs, which caused a lot of damage and a lot of casualties. I think about eight soldiers uh, passed away. And so they created a, a surgical strike where they crossed the line, the de facto line between India and Pakistan to find the terror camp and um, destroy. And then in 2019, right before his elections, he uh, conducted the second Uri, uh, conducted the second surgical strike. And he kind of campaigned it, saying that a vote for me in this situation would be a vote for the soldiers who are fighting on the border. So it, it was just weeks before elections. So I feel like he kind of, you know, um, forged his position uh, as prime minister by showing that he is so anti-terror and anti-violence and that uh, he has this power to uh, get rid of terror and to actually stand up for uh, the Indian soldiers, which is kind of what made him such a popular politician. He was not just um, a politician who was pro-Hindu, but he was he, now he had transformed his identity as anti-terror. But uh, slowly, uh, when his uh, party, the Bharatiya Janata Party, started winning in more and more states, it became very polarized and people who wanted to speak up against the party were, you know, fined or jailed for a few days or they were just arrested and, you know, sat in lockup under night. So it was, they were making the divide. I know that there's a Times Magazine article which calls Modi the divider of India. And I feel like while his initiatives have been uh, helping India on the international platform and putting India first and making India self-reliant, at the same time, uh, there are a lot of uh, human rights issues that have been taking place in the country. Not, It's not reached up to a, such a level that the UN has intervened yet. But there are these small instances that keep happening because of which uh, his popularity is kind of declining, especially among the younger generation. No, so yeah, I just wanted to. I just wanted to um, to say that I, I agree with you that I feel uh, Modi behaves in such a strong man, um, like a nationalist and uh, Hindu uh, fundamental fundamentalist behavior. And I think that uh, in the case of India, uh, one thing that I find really uh, interesting and maybe uh, worrying to my case, it's the, um, the case about institutions. And this is uh, a topic of, of Armis and I, one of her favorite books called Why Nations Fail. And it talks a lot about uh, institutions and how economic and political institutions are really important for uh, nations to develop. And I feel like India is such a huge uh, a subcontinent, pretty much a, a, a country with such a big population. Uh, I feel it's quite fragile in that sense. If we compare uh, its population increase in the last decades in a similar trend than China, and you, do, you then compare how the economic uh, situation for its citizens have improved in certain way in China, but not in India, in the case that maybe uh, institutions break away or there's, there's a, a, a crisis there, like a humanitarian crisis in India could be such a big problem. And recently with, the, with climate change and all of these uh, heat waves, uh, like we all know that these things will just increase in the following years. 
So imagine if this uh, if these heat waves uh, hit a certain way or famines, right? Like the one that we might see in the in the coming month months. I think that India will will have a, a huge hit. So I don't know. I think that's something to look for and and be aware of. Oh, uh, that is true. Actually, I don't know if you uh, have heard about this, but India has a monsoon season. So from June till almost till the mid of September, it almost rains every single day. We call it the monsoon season. Our summer is from April and May till the first week of June. But this year, the monsoon was delayed for almost a month. And it just started uh, last week because of which uh, there's been a lot of issues with farmers because they are not, they don't have the adequate supplies they don't have the adequate water reserves to uh, farm. And I can understand what you mean by if this continues, that it will take a huge hit because of such a huge population and so many mouths to feed. Uh, well, guys, that has been a really interesting discussion lately. I think that India is a really uh, interesting and essential actor in international politics that most times it's uh, looked much upon. And I feel like we really needed to have this episode in war diplomacy and have a focus on this such a key player in international politics. So uh, do you guys have any final thoughts, final conclusions on, on India, the geopolitics of Asia, uh, something like to maybe summary of your, uh, your thoughts on these topics? I don't know, Chris, do you have anything in mind? No, I think it's been uh, such a good time to have you here, Chatel, just to get some more insight into into the different uh, streams of thought that are going both like domestically and in the foreign policy circles of of India. And and as you said, Fabio, it's it's uh, oftentimes overlooked in in the global news media, and and that shouldn't be the case considering how actually how big of a player India is and how important. Uh, important state it is in international affairs which uh yeah we we shouldn't take that for granted so it's it's been great uh, having you here and it's been a really really interesting conversation yeah i'm really thrilled to see what the future trajectory of of india will be um especially considering um what you said sj earlier about um the younger generations being more influenced by western culture and having not this negative a colonial picture of the West and how this will affect Indian politics, especially in the context of China deepening um, their um, relations with Pakistan. Um, so maybe what I could see in the future is a further lining between the West and India, while they might continue to hold their neutral stance. But I'm I'm really thrilled to see that, especially in this Indo-Pacific region that um, now with the Ukraine war, some might have lost this uh, line of thought, but what we have heard over the last decades is that this is the region region to watch when it comes to world politics, when it comes to economy. And um, I think despite what we have seen now in, in Ukraine, um, in the future, we I think the most important happenings of world politics will happen in in the, in this very region, so I think um, yeah, it couldn't be of of greater importance to to look at India to have f to further acknowledge its role in in world politics. So really thrilled to see what will happen in the future. And what about you, Shital, as our special guest of today's episode? What are your final 
conclusions for this uh, this topic? Uh, well, thank you guys so much for having me. First of all, it was a great time and a really good discussion. I think we touched on topics from the younger to the older generation and how India's non-alignment movement is not just a factor of its independence, but also how they don't want to align themselves to uh, any country because they share borders with such volatile countries like China. And I feel like the, uh, the further we go, the younger the generation, they might not understand the post-colonial influences of the British rule, uh, but it also might have a huge impact on uh, the new dynamics in politics. No, absolutely, SJ. That's a great. That's a great final uh, conclusion for this episode. And uh, folks, as as it's tradition here in War Diplomacy, we finish episodes having a recommendation for our listeners regarding series, TV shows, uh, movies, uh, other podcasts, books. So if you have anything in mind, that would be great. Uh, let's start with Aramis this time. Yeah, there is a documentary by Leonardo DiCaprio, which is called Before the Flood. Um, which essentially deals with global warming and how it will affect the world. And there is also a section regarding India within that documentary where an official from the Indian government, if I recall correctly, um, argues that um, India, uh, in India the fight against climate change is being hindered by the West not acting enough because they're saying, okay, if the developed and rich countries are not ramping up their efforts towards climate change, then why should India um, take the lead in this and take the costs especially? And um, I think if we look at the future in general and in world politics, we do not take the role of the environment into account enough. Um, we addressed it shortly today that this will very much affect India. Yeah, I think that that it's important to, to make sense of this, to remember and um, yeah, to acknowledge this major event that is taking place at mm -hmm. the moment and before the flood is just the perfect reminder for yourself to get to know the most important key facts regarding global warming. Um, uh, I remember watching watching the movie uh, Gandhi uh, with uh, directed by Richard Attenborough with uh, Ben Kingsley. Uh, it, it might be a lot of people having that as like their first uh, exposure to to this like very very significant historical development in India's history, uh, both both like uh, independence-wise and also with Gandhism, which has been very influential uh, in in Indian political and social uh, relations. Really good movie, really good movie. What about you, Shital? Do you have any recommendation for our listeners? Uh, I have two great movie recommendations. Uh, I would say first uh, watch Uri, The Surgical Strike. It's a great movie depicting how the Indian soldiers were able to um, cross the line of control and were able to uh, be there without contact for about 24 hours. Food, no food, no water, no sleep kind of thing. And the other one is Hotel, uh, Hotel Mumbai. Uh, it's a movie about the 2008 terror attacks in Mumbai, which is my city. Um, it has Dave Patel. He's one of my favorite actors. And yeah, that's about it. 
And well, to conclude, I'm also going to recommend a movie where uh, De Patel uh, stars. It's a beautiful film called Slumdog Millionaire. I'm sure you have uh, watched it. It talks about a teenager from the slums of Mumbai. He becomes a contestant in this show. Uh, he um, he might win a, such a, a big amount of money, but he is uh, interrogated under the suspicion that he has cheated. So throughout this interrogation, he starts revealing a lot of, of uh, moments of his life. And I think it's a really good movie to have a little idea of how religion plays a big role in Indian society. Uh, it, it gives a, little, a, a good sense in poverty because I think poverty has a big impact on how uh, Indians uh, live uh, throughout their day-to-day -day lives. And uh, it's a really, really beautiful film, so completely recommended. And well, folks, uh, this is it for this India-focused episode. I think it's been great to have you, Shital, here as the guest. Uh, we talked a lot about these topics in class and in Brussels. So it's a pleasure for us to have you here today. And uh, it's really great to be back, right? Because now the summer is up. We might uh, take a little bit more time with, between episodes as we're really busy, but there's always time for some good geopolitical analysis, or so they say. <laughs> Absolutely. Thank you for joining us. Bye-bye.